On the 14th of September 2007, 14-year-old Andrew Gosden from Doncaster did something that changed his parents' lives forever. He told his mum and dad he was going to school, but instead he bought a one-way ticket to London's King's Cross station. That was the last day his family saw him. He simply disappeared. Nobody knows why, a fact that has plunged his father Kevin into a life of trial and torment, a life in which his belief in God has been tested to the limit. I'm Mark Dowd with Things Unseen, the programme for people who think there's more to life than the material world, but who may or may not have a faith of their own. Kevin, tell us about that day that Andrew disappeared. When did you first notice that all wasn't well? We basically discovered this after work in the evening. Both my wife and I were in late, as was my daughter, and... um, Generally speaking, you would have found Andrew either in our converted cellar playing on his Xbox or just upstairs in his bedroom reading. We assumed that's where he was. So once we'd assembled a meal, we looked around the house and quickly discovered that he wasn't in the house. Now, that doesn't cause any initial panic for most people, but we'd started ringing around and it turned out that he hadn't even been in school that day. Now, that was beyond unusual. He never missed. He never missed. So that, in itself, immediately set alarm bells ringing. Was that the moment when you tensed up and thought, oh, my God, there's something really serious here? Yeah. Yeah. And because we couldn't find any information from any friends or anything as to where he was, it was at that point that we rang the police. And looking back, had there been anything in Andrew's life approaching this period where, with the wisdom of hindsight, you thought, oh, you know, he was a bit worried or a bit distressed or he was showing anxiety? Uh, This is one of the things we have racked our brains, all of us, over and over, and we just cannot think of any single thing that would have been bothering him. I mean, he most certainly did not have any issues at home, he did not have any issues at school. I mean, it was just absolutely normal. For example, the Saturday before he disappeared, he and I were just painting the front gate outside, you know, just a dad and lad sort of thing that you do. The, The day he disappeared, I understand he was offered a return ticket at the station, but he purposely said, no, he just wanted a single. Yes, we gather that, but that... I mean, the obvious conclusion is that it meant that he had no intention of returning ever, or certainly not for a very long period of time. But the other equally simple explanation is that his grandparents, aunts, uncles, various friends of ours all live in London, so it's just as straightforward to suppose that he'd thought, I want to do something or other, and then I'll end up with one of them and I'll face the music later. (laughs) You and your wife, you know, were church-going people, people of faith. At what point in the story did you begin to start praying? Yeah, I mean, immediately. Absolutely okay. immediately. What was that prayer? What were you saying to God? Well, I think, I mean, prayer comes in many different forms. I think both for my wife and I, a lot of prayer goes on just almost silently as you go about your daily life and you think about situations or you see something crop up. So you're almost praying as things happen. 
you know, and I think both of us for a time were doing that and then really late at night perhaps coming together and praying with each other. So the days go by, a week or two goes by. What kind of space are you in then mentally when there's no quick resolution to the story? That sort of period was absolutely frantic. On the Monday, we very quickly discovered from the lady who'd sold Andrew the train ticket on the Friday that that's what had happened to him. Another witness came forward who had sat opposite him on the train as far as Peterborough. He knew Andrew had remained on the train and there's only one further stop on that train, which was King's Cross. So he knew very quickly what carriage he'd been in, what time it arrived in King's Cross, and it's what happened to him after that that we didn't know. At that point, fundamentally, my wife and my daughter, who was 16 at the time, came down to London with lots of posters and to start searching everywhere we could think of in London that we knew Andrew liked or might be attracted to. So these places tell us a lot about Andrew. Just tell the people listening to this programme what these places were and what that tells us about Andrew's interests and hobbies and the kind of young boy he was. He basically liked rock and metal music. So one of the things we did was looked at what gigs were on and where and so on. And lots of museums and places of interest that he would go to. Andrew was almost painfully intelligent. He was one of those annoying people who's a straight-A student and he doesn't even seem to have to work <laughs> at it. What about his common sense and his practical values? I mean, the thought of him on his own in a big city like London compared with a small place outside of Doncaster, those are very different worlds, aren't they? Andrew could be a little bit... I guess I would characterise it as mad professorish, a little bit sort of absent-minded. Now, I wouldn't have said that he was naive, but I wouldn't have said that he was streetwise. So he would have been vulnerable? Yes. He was also quite young-looking and quite small compared to a lot of his peers. So weeks, even a month or two goes by, there's no sign of him. You've made these searches what's going on what did the police say to you by this stage because they'd found him on cctv <laughs> arriving at king's cross about a month after he disappeared yes i still haven't understood why it took 27 days they tell us that all the cctv in the street was either not working or pointing in the wrong direction and so on and so forth and one of my huge frustrations both at the time and ever since has been that the CCTV from the buses and the tube station was never even requested. That's something that at the time I saw as a huge, huge issue because we had absolutely no other information. There were no traces on... <sighs> computers. He didn't even have an email address, so we knew that he wasn't signing onto social networks because you can't without an email address. He had chosen not to have a mobile phone because he'd lost a couple 
and just in the end went, well, I'm not bothered when we offered to replace it for So he was disconnected, reasons. really, from the world. Yeah. If he was communicating with somebody else ahead of time, frankly, I have absolutely no idea how he was doing it because there were no traces of it anywhere on our phone records, the computer, anything. So... I mean, three, four months after his disappearance, you began to enter into quite a dark space, didn't you, yourself? Yes. What what happened? After the initial four weeks or so, CID took over from the team that had been managing things up to then. I think probably if we think about cases like Madeleine McCann and her disappearance and the treatment by the Portuguese police of them, it's fairly easy to see the sorts of assumptions that are made by the police. What, what sort of assumptions? I think, first of all, think murder. Then they start thinking abuse, physical, sexual. Then they start thinking neglect, emotional. And... Fundamentally, just because you are male, they assume that that has been an issue in the household that has caused the kid to leave. Did you feel that implicitly from the police or were these explicit points that were raised with you in questioning from them? Both, because there were a number of meetings. And you felt fingered? Very much so. The first time they ever came into our house, it took them about 10 minutes to get onto. And how do you discipline Andrew? You keep thinking that they will figure out that it's rubbish, but unfortunately they don't. It was followed then by other interviews, some of which they covertly video recorded. Their reasoning for which it turned out subsequently was that they were concerned that they would pressurised me to the extent where I would take my own life. And fundamentally, that is what happened. What did happen? I got to a point where I felt they were clearly trying to blame me, scapegoat me, to discredit us as a family and cover their backs over the uh, flaws that had arisen in the investigation. My conclusion from that was that it would be better for everybody if I was out of the way. So what plans did you have to remove yourself from the scene, as it were? I found some old washing line and tied it around the balustrade at the top of our stairs and the other end around my neck and chucked myself over. I would now be dead, but for the simple fact that our friend and vicar, Alan, called at the house with some food for us at the precise moment when I chucked myself over the balustrade. He heard a loud crash, which alarmed him, and then getting no response, he ran back to his house for the spare key that he holds for us and uh, returned got me down, unconscious. The next I knew was, I don't know how many hours later, waking up staring at a, a ceiling in, in our hospital. As you look back at that episode now, 
do you think this was just an amazing coincidence? How do you interpret it? It still seems to me beyond just coincidence. If that's down to random chance and luck, the odds must be considerably longer than winning the lottery or something, particularly considering that, in theory, Alan didn't even think anybody would be at the house, and it was simply that he'd forgotten that. And also the timing, because if he'd not heard the noise, he wouldn't have been alerted to Precisely. go and get the keys. Yeah. So we're talking... Ten seconds before, ten seconds afterwards. So a minutiae little window of time, really. Yeah. 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 Was this God? I mean, let's cut to the quick here. Was this God? I think I would call it a God incidence as opposed to a coincidence. Mm. For me, that really does border on miraculous. You know, I mean, I should be dead. And knowing that that happened, presumably in your ongoing journey after recovery, the fact that there was, inverted commas, intervention, must have given you quite a lot of strength because it's a communication that something or some force still wants you here. Yes, I would say that over the last almost six years now, since Andrew disappeared, that day was the one day when I completely forgot about God, when I left him absolutely out of the equation and fundamentally attempted to take my destiny into my own hands. I still struggle because of the depression I've had to deal with subsequently. I still struggle to see why, apparently, God wants me alive and what the purpose of it all is. This depression you've been in, this uncertainty of not knowing what happened to Andrew, are there elements of the Bible or religious figures that give you inspiration and where you point to the stories and think, oh, it's a bit like this, or I'm not the only one who's been through this, it's happened. A very wise lady vicar said to me, your life has got stuck on Good Friday, the day that Jesus was crucified. So he was flogged, marched through the streets, nailed to a cross, left out in the sun to slowly die. And I began to identify with that much more clearly because I felt, first of all, very exposed because we'd done every media opportunity to try and get some news of Andrew that we could. And it is difficult because you're putting your life, your thoughts, your feelings out there into the public domain in a way that doesn't feel hugely comfortable. It's very raw, isn't it? You're inviting all these strangers into the most personal... It's like you're bearing your soul to the whole world, isn't it? Yeah. And and I, it, it must hurt. It doesn't feel like a remotely normal thing to do. Well, it isn't. So I felt that sense of exposure. I felt that sense of humiliation because of what I'd been through with the police. The pain, I cannot describe the pain of not knowing if your own son is alive or dead. And one of the things that happened when Jesus was on the cross was that the sky was blackened and 
There was also a point at which he cried out, Father, why have you left me? And that very much echoes with how I felt on the day I tried to take my own life. Now, that day of Good Friday is not a good place to be stuck on in your life. And I would say I was stuck there for at least four years with my depression and mental state. So what made the difference? How did you slowly get out of Good Friday into a different kind of space? I was helped enormously by the concept that Jesus has, in effect, been there ahead of us. We have a saviour who absolutely understands the darkest, most awful places in your life and is there with you. And that's something I've very much clung to. The other thing about it is, because we know he rose from the dead, there's always this hope, and I mean hope in not in wishful thinking terms, but hope in definitely, at some point, we can look forward to resurrection. That the world will be remade anew. How exactly that will come about, or when it will come about, is more open to interpretation. Somebody once said that when people try to speak with religious language, they're always in danger of making idiots of themselves. But I'll have a go with a question. (laughs) Does this mean that in some deep sense of your mind, your heart, your soul, that in some way that you and Andrew will be reunited or will see one another again? You can't rule out that hope. No, I wouldn't like to say exactly what heaven is like or how it works. I wouldn't like to be too literal about where the Bible says all things will be revealed to us. What those all things consist of, you know, may not be the minutiae of your own personal journey. But yes, there is a hope. And there's a hope that with or without Andrew's body, at some point you find resurrection, if you like. Now, whether that would come in this life or whether it would be a case of the assurance that we go to heaven when we die, I don't know. This must have put an awful strain on your relationship with your wife because it nearly always seems to when children disappear and no matter how you go about it, people are different, there are different reactions. That can't have been easy for you. Gosh, it's... It's so, so hard. I don't like to speak too much on somebody else's behalf, but Glenys, my wife, is the sort of person who probably sees things in quite a black and white way. She finds it easier to cope by assuming that because there's been absolutely no contact and no information coming forward over all this time that Andrew is dead and we simply haven't turned up a body. I am the sort of person who sees issues in shades of grey and I fluctuate. There's a big part of me that agrees with my wife, but there's another big part of me that says, but we don't have a body. There are ways to survive out there. He might be fine. Are you angry with him for what he did? No. Because a lot of people would be, I suppose. Yes, I'm interested that you asked that. I was angry with him for about a week or two. 
about five years ago. <laughs> but actually, no. I mean, again, this is something that perhaps relates to my faith because if God, our Father, loves us as individual, precious children, there are millions of people in the world who go their own way and choose to ignore him. And the pain that stems from that is absolutely enormous. But I identify strongly with that desire of just, I am your father, I love you, regardless of where you've been or what you've done or how you've messed up or how mucky you've got. And if you want to come back to me, I will welcome you with open arms. But also, if you've not been angry with Andrew, there might have been times when you've been angry with God. Just like Job in the Bible who says, look, I'm a good guy. You know, why did you let this happen to me? I'm the last person to deserve this. Who gets what they deserve in life? In this life. In this life. In this life. The Bible doesn't say anywhere that I can think of that life will be fair, that it will be easy, that we won't suffer. I never had any expectation that my life would be fair. Where I most strongly felt anger is really with the policing issues that meant fundamentally that any real chance we had of finding Andrew initially was lost and that meant that I ended up with this horrendous depression. I literally spent four years where I wanted to die every single day. Kevin, there's a lot of parents listening to this programme who are probably with children of their own who think, God, if that happened to me, I wouldn't be able to control my imagination. I would fill my mind with all sorts of scenarios yep. of what might have happened to him. Uh, yeah. what, what, what has gone through your mind on this front? Have there been all sorts of you know, hypotheses and scenarios yep. in your own mind? Exactly. I mean, the whole works from, you know, did he turn up at King's Cross and get mugged and bashed on the head and killed and they just dumped his body somewhere and never found or you know did he take his own life for some reason that would completely baffle any of us I mean we've been as far as sonar scanning the Thames to look for bodies because we got to the point where we thought well one hasn't turned up above ground perhaps it's in the river if you did find him, what, what difference would that make? This word that's often used, closure, does that really resonate with you as a...? Absolutely. It's, and what does it mean to you? I mean, I used to think if you lost your child, if they died, that that would be the worst thing pretty much that could happen to any parent. Now, I think that's not true. Because when somebody dies, no matter how awful the circumstances, uh, take for example a teenager being stabbed to death in the street, awful. And I find myself in a position where to my shame I actually feel envious of those families. Because when somebody dies there are rituals, a funeral, a cremation, something like that. It's saying goodbye. Yes. When you just don't know, you keep doing parts of that in your head. You do the, the partial closure of thinking, well, he must be dead, or I tell myself, 
if I say to myself strongly enough that the odds are he's dead, does that help me move on? And the, I mean, at the end of the day, I can't say that to myself strongly enough because what if we're wrong? Can you imagine getting through the last six years without the Christian faith that you have? Absolutely not. Not a chance. Andrew went missing on the Friday. The following Wednesday, lots of people from our church met in the church to pray for him and for us as a family. And they've been meeting every Wednesday since. People in church have sat with me, with all of us, through the worst possible times we could imagine in our lives. They have been sensitive, supportive. You know, I get hugs from a lady with severe learning disabilities, right through to a friend who's a Cambridge graduate with a brain the size of a planet. You know, everybody in between. You know, I love that. I've always loved it. Before any of this happened, I found it hugely enriching. Kevin, just a last question. You know, what would you say to the 20-year-old Andrew, if he could hear you now? Our message to Andrew has always remained the same. It is simply that, Andrew, you know we love you, we care about you, if you've got a problem, we want to help, and we just want to know that you're OK. Kevin, it's a sad story. It's an extraordinary story, and I have to say, I think you're an extraordinary man. So thank you for talking to me today. I'm Mark Dowd, and you've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people who think the meaning of life goes deeper than the material world, whether or not they belong to a faith community. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.